So you all don't know this, but Scott said to me, he said, if you would come, I'll say the best things about you. <laughs> so that people are going to leave thinking you are just awesome. I'm here. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure uh, to be worshiping here today. And isn't it a joy to think that our God and our Lord Jesus Christ are being worshipped worldwide. The Apostle Paul said, he said, what does it matter? Some preach Christ out of envy, selfish ambition, thinking that they could stir up troubles for me while in these chains. But what does it matter? In every way, Christ is being preached. And in this, I will rejoice. I just want to remind us that when we reflect on that reality that is no longer centered in Jerusalem, it's worldwide, that our God is making his mark worldwide with such as us, people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here, the Woodlands Bible Church, we join in, right, that great assembly of believers from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every people called by God to worship him. Without question, the plan of God is to glorify himself. And, and obviously, that, that's not new news, but it's news that sometimes uh, gets pushed into the backdrop as we deal with life. But God, the ultimate end of God is to glorify himself. I love how how Paul summarizes all of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28. He says, when all things are subjected to him, him being God, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and in all. God may be all and in all. That's where we're headed. That's where the Lord is taking his redemptive history. But until that time, we have these visible expressions of worship all over the globe. And here's a consideration. We must always consider whether our worship is acceptable to God as believers individually and as a church body collectively thinking reflecting, is it acceptable? The Bible has much to say about worship, but I, I want to concentrate on John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24. This is the account of the Lord Jesus at the well in Samaria uh, with the woman at the well, and it, it's an incredible account that gives a great expression, a reality of what worship is all about, and I'll just snatch out of this section uh, what I believe the Lord would have us concentrate on uh, today. Uh, I've entitled the message, Jesus Describes Acceptable Worship. And that's what he's doing with this lady. He makes it very plain what's acceptable and obviously what's not acceptable. So John chapter 4, verses, 14, verses 19 through 24. The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, 
and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What a passage. So I aim this morning to answer four questions as we uh, peel out the idea of worship, worshiping our God. Uh, the definition is the what of worship, the scope, the where of worship, the practice, the how of worship, and the motive, the why of worship. Why do we worship? You'll notice that uh, one form of the word worship is mentioned 10 times in these six verses. While this passage is undoubtedly about worship, it doesn't necessarily give us a definition of worship. When you think of worship, what comes to mind? Amen. Amen, amen. I will begin by examining three words and defining worship. The first of the three words is uh, proskuneo. Proskuneo from which we get the word prostate. We're going to prostrate ourselves on the ground. We're going to fall to the ground. We're going to bow. Uh, it, it literally means uh, to kiss forward in a bowing type posture where you are uh, bowing to a superior in an act of humble submission or even adoration. Uh, an example of this particular word is in Matthew 2.11, where it reads, after coming into the house, the Magi coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped. Proskuneo fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, most uses of proskuneo with respect to the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, um, are in the Gospels, where there's a visible representation of God, and the book of Revelation, where there's a visible representation of God, because it's the physical act of, of bowing. Now, this is primarily, primarily because, once again, the individual is present to whom you're, you're bowing. An example is in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 25 and 26, where Cornelius, remember Cornelius uh, calls for Peter. The Lord changes Peter's understanding of what is clean and what is unclean, sends Peter to Cornelius, and as soon as he arrives, Cornelius falls and worships Peter. And Peter raised him up and said, I'm just a man. Proskuneo is what uh, Cornelius did. So you see, it's that, that physical act. So when we worship, we don't fall. I mean, it's okay if we do, but we don't typically fall 
uh, face down or bow because there's not the visible presence of the Lord. And once again, it's not, it's not wrong to do that, uh, but it's unnecessary in the way that Jesus describes worship, as we'll see in a second. However, falling prostrate is a physical act that ought to symbolize the inner attitude toward God, the inner appreciation, the submissiveness. All that comes with that external act is insignificant if there's not that internal appreciation of who God is and that adoration for who he is. The Lord captured that when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The external act of worship, but the internal absence of the adoration, the honor, the glory that is due our God. So that's proskuneo. The second word for worship is latreo. Uh, and while proskuneo is always translated worship, latreo can be service or worship, usually service. And this word we find in Philippians 3.3 where Paul says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this proskuneo captures that, that inner attitude, heart and soul of the, of the worshiper. Latreo captures the believer's life activities, which is why it's often translated service. It just captures all that we do in service to our God. And that is a beautiful, beautiful form, obviously, of worship. Paul sums up this notion of, of or, or the, the, uh, the reality of Latreo, service, worship, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Magnificent verse, right? I beseech you, he says. I urge you. I learned it in the King James Version, the old beseech, right? So I'll read because this is the NASB. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, or some translations, your spiritual act of worship, or some translations, your reasonable service. It's all of us. It's taking who we are and presenting it to God. And Paul is urging that, the entirety, the entirety of ourselves in service to God, and that describes worship. And then the final word to clarify worship is the word worship itself. It's an old English word that comes from worth-ship, where you're, you're recognizing the worth of an individual. And obviously, in this case, we're recognizing the worth of God. We're paying homage. We are honoring because of the worth that we recognize. It's been said, obviously, that whatever we worship, whatever we adore, whatever is there is the thing that we pay most attention to. So put it all together. I think there's a slide for this. To worship God is to recognize his worth, is to so recognize his worth that we prostrate our heart and soul, our inner being, in reverent submission 
and adoration for who God is and to live a life of service to him. That's not a lot to ask, but that's what worship represents. And we see this all through the Gospels. This is what David communicated in Psalm 29, 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. So with that definition, we're, we're going to move into these other critical aspects of worship. Uh, let's move to the scope of worship, the where. Where do we worship God? Like, where is it appropriate to worship God? Jesus, he answers this question, and we're going to look at a couple of verses here, 20, 21, 23, and 24. In answering the lady, Jesus says, oh, let's, let's start with the lady. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And then Jesus responds, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming, verse 23, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, his response to the lady and the, the, uh, the question or the, the uh, intended question from this lady, it helps to have some background about the Samaritans. So I'll just give you a couple of quick bullets about the Samaritans. In 1722 BC, the Assyrians uh, attacked and conquered the upper kingdom. However, they, they ended up leaving a remnant of, of Israelites, the, the elderly, the weak. They left them in the land, and then they imported foreigners to, uh, to, to, to keep the land and obviously to support the Israelites who were left. And you can find all of this in 2 Kings chapter 17. And those foreigners that came in, they obviously came in with their own foreign gods. But up to this point, the remnant of the Israelites were true Israelites. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians captured the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the Lord kept them there for 70 years as he uh, decreed and punishment. And in 515 or so BC, the Jews returned to their land and began building the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans now, the people left, the Samaritans opposed. They actually came, you can find this in Ezra 4, Nehemiah 4. So the Samaritans, they came up to the Jews, Ezra, Nehemiah, building the temple, building the wall, and they actually wanted to help in support of building the temple. They declared that they worship the same God and we've been sacrificing to him all this time. Well, the Jews rejected them, pushed them away. And uh, they started to scoff at the efforts of the Jews to build the temple, build the wall. And that's where the hatred began. Intense hatred. So the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim in their own territory. And then during the Maccabean era, 
the Jews destroyed that temple. So you can start to see what's happening. By the time of the Lord Jesus, they're, they're, they're absolutely hated. There's hatred between the two. The Samaritans hold four principles of faith. There's one God, the God of Israel. They believe that. There is one prophet, one prophet, Moses. And that's because they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. That's it. And then there's only one place to worship, Mount Gerizim. So by the time of Jesus, you can see what's happening. The Jews, they, they just treated the Samaritans and vice versa in a disparaging way. Language, Jews called them half-breeds, just, just ugliness between the two. And so this is what's happening. This is in the heart and the mind and the soul of this Samaritan woman who I believe by now, by, the, by the, this point in the conversation, she really wants to know, can you clarify where should we worship? And the reason I think that is because she's already declared that you are a prophet because <laughs> the Lord told her about her dirty deeds, all of the husbands she's had and all of this. And so this lady is being drawn into the kingdom by the Lord Jesus Christ. She's being saved. And the Lord exposed her sin. She recognizes you must be a prophet and hear the issue with where should we worship. From Jesus' answer to the woman's question, we can conclude that worship of God cannot be limited to time and space. God is spirit, and that's very critical. In the book of Isaiah, when it starts talking about what would you liken our God to, and, and these, these uh, uh, various uh, representations of God, false, obviously, because he's spirit. How do you represent a spirit? Okay? Very key statement, God is spirit. God cannot be contained in a specific time and place. God cannot be conformed to any image. And God is everywhere, all the time. So by spirit, what is not meant is obviously that God is everything. Like in, uh, I, I believe it's pantheism where everything is God. A leaf is God, right? But to say that God is spirit is to say that God is not everything, but obviously everything is in the presence of God all the time because he reigns supreme. Didn't David teach us this? I know this is probably a favorite passage for many of us. Psalm 139. This is incredible. Just, just take in what David is saying. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. David is not frightened by God's omnipresence. He's encouraged by it. He's blessed to know that, and obviously we are as well. God is spirit, cannot be conformed to any one space or any set time. So consequently, to worship God cannot be turned on and turned off, right, based on where we are, time of day. Worship of God is all of life. It's everywhere, and it's all the time. He can't be turned off, right? And it's a delight to know that. It is. Only those who don't know the Lord are threatened by that. But for us who know him and breathe in the truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? That's our God. He's for us. It is a terrible thing when Christians are being led to believe that God is against them. He is never against us. David committed murder, rape, you name it. And he's a man after God's own heart. To be sure, God disciplined him. But even that discipline is out of love. If one is not disciplined, he's an illegitimate child. God sees it all, knows it all, is constantly with us. When he promises, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he carries that out. So some of you at this point, up to what I've been saying about worship, might be wondering, okay, what about, what about like evening worship, uh, prayer meetings, personal prayer? Uh, what about those things? Well, those are activities of worship to be sure. And these activities obviously should reflect a transformed heart, a heart that is, that is with it, a heart that is connected uh, to the Lord, a worshipful heart, if you will. Or what about what we're doing now, Sunday service? What about this? If it's everywhere, all the time, what about here and now? The gathering of the saints is critical. It's an activity of worship, but it's a critical activity of worship. It is the one that God has ordained, the activity. While individually, we worship all the time, everywhere, any space, individually. Individually, we come together and collectively, we worship the Lord, the corporate worship, corporate from corpus body, the body worship. We worship the Lord collectively. It's a time and a space that's ordained for us to gather our individual worshipful lives and collectively worship God as a body. Paul captures this, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, where he, he, he writes, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And here he's referring to the church. He's referring to uh, the body. And again, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Corporate worship is individual Christians, again, coming together as the body of Christ and being united in worship. God is with us, the scripture indicates. God is with us. He's with the body, the local bodies. God is with us in a unique way, witnessing and embodying our worship. You, you get an image of this in Revelation where the Lord Jesus is walking among the lampstands, where he is in the midst of the churches. You get, you get some hint of that, but to be sure, when the body is together, there is that uniqueness of God. He knows our thoughts. He knows our attitudes of the heart. And of course, once again, it shouldn't be a threat. It should be a comfort to know that God is with us. And he's not with us because we beckon him to come. We can't beckon enough. <laughs> he comes because he is the head of the church. And he's always with his church. Now, corporate worship is more than just a, ma a matter of formalities, obviously. Corporate worship is a collection of individual worshipers who so recognize the worth of God that we prostrate our hearts, souls, and reverent submission and adoration to who he is and live a life of service to him. So in summary then, the scope of worship, the where of worship is all of life, everywhere, all the time, and we each bring our individual worship to the gathering of the saints where we glorify God collectively in corporate worship. That's the scope. So we have the definition of what, we have the scope, the where, Let's examine the practice. The practice is how. How do we worship God? Jesus makes a concluding statement about the how with the lady. Notice his response in verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. One of the difficulties with corporate worship, is recognizing what acceptable worship is and is not. I don't know that we as churches even consider that, right? Like I, and that has to always be a consideration whether it's acceptable or not. Jesus describes worship as being in spirit and truth, and he identifies those who worship in spirit and truth as true worshipers. Here's the rejoicing matter of it all. Every single believer, by God's doing, is a true worshiper. Every believer. That lady came with unacceptable worship. She wasn't saved. That lady left as a true worshiper because God saved her. Every single believer can rejoice always in knowing that our God has made us true worshipers. If we have nothing else, which there's a lot, to praise our God for, how about shifting us from darkness to light so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth? One of the unacceptable forms of worship is self-satisfaction, obviously. 
which is what the Samaritan is probably declaring without even knowing it. The woman had thoughts of worship that satisfied her people, and the Jews had thoughts of worship that satisfied its people. And Jesus declared them both unacceptable. Can you imagine a Jew hearing that? Your worship is just as unacceptable as the hated Samaritans, the Samaritans that you hate. You know that's why he gave the parable of the great Samaritan, which is a whole other story, but he knew how to get him. One theologian wrote, when we believe that we should be satisfied rather than God, glorified in worship, and we put God below ourselves as though he had been made for us rather than that we had been made for him. Worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? I think we're getting there, that internal appreciation for who God is, service to God. Worship in spirit is the opposite of external practices that can be seen. And it's not that the external practices are good or bad. It's just that the external practice without the internal uh, appreciation, adoration for God is, uh, is unacceptable. So it speaks of a willful commitment of the inner being, the passionate worship of the soul and spirit, the core of a person worshiping God. Romans 1.9, Paul wrote, for God, listen to Paul, for God, whom I serve with my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son. Like every single believer, if someone is calling something to question, every believer ought to be able to say, whoa, 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 God, whom I worship with my spirit, bears witness that this is this. Every believer should be able to say that. When we're so connected with the Lord, we live that way, it becomes a reality that we live for him and not for anyone else. And so it's easy to call him into that place of, of witnessing to something that, that we want uh, someone to believe. But back to Paul. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how ceasingly I make mention of you. One commentator says about what Paul just wrote, what people do with their bodies may be observed and reported by their fellows, but... What one does in one's own spirit is known certainly only to God. And that accounts for Paul's appeal to God as a witness of his inner sincerity and devotion to the gospel of Christ. So when Jesus stated, these people worship me with their, with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, he recognized that they did not worship in spirit. Those who worship in spirit have an inner, sincere devotion to submit to the Lord and to live for him. Now, you could have that. And this is where it, it behooves us to always evaluate. Because you can have that. You can have sincerity. Uh, most believers, I believe, walking with the Spirit, in and out, all of us, there's a level of sincerity that comes with salvation. In fact, Jesus said, we produce fruits, 30, 60, 100 fold. So there's a level of sincerity, but 
That's not all there is. The second part of the pair is we must worship in truth. In truth. There are tons, tons of gatherings around the world. Some in, in within Christendom and Orthodox, some outside. Um, that's not in truth. And, and the belief is, well, God will accept it. You know, we're trying our best. No. God, he doesn't, I always like to say, God doesn't give a pass. He gives grace. And grace brings you to meet the standard he sets. Because he never deviates from the standard he sets. But he gives grace so that we might meet that standard. So it must be in spirit and truth. Without the true knowledge of God, then worship is unacceptable. And this indicates that, once again, one can be sincere, all through the gospel. Sincere, uh, but not necessarily in truth. The word of God informs every aspect of our lives and brings our lives into harmony with God's will. Even the unbelieving Jews during Jesus' day had a zeal for God. They had a sincere zeal for the true God. How do I know that? Because in Romans 10, 2, Paul says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. As I stated before, all believers become true worshipers through salvation. We worship in truth because we worship in accordance with the truth that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by him. All believers get that. That's a part of what comes with salvation. The challenge is to continuously grow in knowledge so that our passion for the Lord grows as it is propelled by truth. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The preacher's calling is to preach the word because it is through the word and only through the word that believers grow. Peter says, crave the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Every believer is able to taste that the Lord is good. That's God's doing. And now he is, he is urging us to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord, to grow in our salvation. And the only way that will happen is through the word of God, obviously through the word of God. Man, you are all awesome. I get amens. I get applause. I get someone talking great things about me. This, this is a place to be on Sunday. <laughs> Hallelujah. No, you know the word of God is tasty, right? It, it, it fills the soul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So one preacher said about spirit and truth, I should think, and this is one of my favorite preachers to read about, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections, the emotions of my hearers as high as possibly I can. 
provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. Now, at this point, before we hit the final point, which we're winding down, Scott said about an hour and 15 minutes. I told him 45, an hour and 15, brother. That's what we hold to. All right, so we'll get there, Scott. So it's, it's at this point that consider this. Imperfection is not an indictment. Imperfection is not a sin. It's not an indictment. It's not a sin. It's a reality. Every one of us will be being sanctified by God until he comes back or until we die. So when you look within, it's not a surprise that we're always, by God's doing, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God, like Paul says. That's what we do. That's who we are. And so looking in and seeing imperfection, it's okay. It's kind of like we said last week in Truth Talk about, about doubt. It's okay to have doubt. It's just not okay to stay there. Right? Like that level of imperfection that you see today ought not be the same that you see next year. It shouldn't. Then the Word of God worked in our souls by the Holy Spirit will ensure that it does not stay there. But without the Word of God, we're left with playing with imperfection. It's the Word of God that builds us up, that gets us moving, that constrains us, Paul says. The final point, the motive. Why do we worship? Why worship the Lord? The quick answer is, we worship the Lord because he commanded us to, right? Which he did. We worship the Lord because he commanded us to. But given what I've just presented about worshiping in the spirit as a willful and sincere desire of the soul, to leave the answer as simply God commanded us is to leave out some essential details. So let's take two minutes to talk a little bit about those essential details. We worship because worshiping God is what we were created to do. We, we were not brought on earth. Adam was not brought on earth for Adam. Adam was brought on earth for God. And so far as Adam is worshiping God, he experiences joy and peace and all the good things in life because that's what he was called to do. But Adam sinned and lost the desire and the ability to do that. However, in salvation, God restores us to the purpose of life. So we worship God because we were created to do just that. In John 4.23, Jesus tells the woman, but an hour is coming, now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and truth for such people. The Father seeks to be his worshipers. The work of God and a person's salvation is motivated by the fact that God is seeking those on earth who will worship him as he has directed in spirit and in truth. And let me give you an example from the Old Testament. And hopefully the slide is not up there yet, because this is a trivia question. Do you rem- It's already there. Uh, it's, someone knows the final words Pharaoh uttered to Moses. 
all of the time up to 10 plagues. Moses is back and forth. Pharaoh, having conversation. When it's time to leave, which is after the 10th plague, oh, they're going to leave because that's what God had determined. But listen to the final words. Then he called to Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people. And he probably said it like that. Both you and the sons of Israel and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. That's what Moses kept saying. Pharaoh says it in the end. Go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Even Pharaoh recognized, held on to that, that the Israelites were being delivered, but they were not being delivered for themselves. They were not being taken to a land of milk and honey to, to just be excited and, and, and relish this, this, this freedom. No, they were freed to worship God. All the benefits from an individual does not come from concentrating on the individual. It comes from concentrating on the Lord God. They were freed to worship God. Here's a good point. Our ultimate motivation for worshiping God is that we were saved to worship him. Amen. We were not just saved to escape hell. We were not just saved to escape the wrath of God, which all of that is true, obviously, and we rejoice in that. But, but when we think ultimate, like what is, what is the pinnacle, what is the thing that I most ought to concentrate on is that, Roosevelt, you were saved to worship God. That's what you do. That's what you make as a priority. And Paul captures this once again in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20, where here he's talking about the individual. Or don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you were not your own? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. Back in chapter 3, in a part of 6, he's talking about the collection of saints being the body of Christ. Here, he's making the point that every individual Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Every, and we're not our own. We were bought at a price. Glorify God. God purchased every believer. Peter says, it was not with silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of the Savior. You and I know that that wasn't a cheap purchase. That was not an insignificant purchase. That was the Son of God dying on a cross at the hands of wicked men who did what God had predetermined should be done. That is what gave you and I the right to be called Children of God, we have the right to walk on earth as children of God. Amazing. And the price to me, the price to me helps motivate this effort, even as imperfect as it might be. 
it helps to continue to motivate that effort. One commentator wrote, nothing can be more consistent with reason than that the work of God should glorify its author. We are not our own. We were the property of the Lord by the right of creation and redemption, and it would be as unreasonable as it would be wicked not to live to his glory and strict obedience to his will. Listen, it is a sad note that so often professing believers think we are here to plan our lives and pray that God would bless those plans. That's, that's not biblical. It is... God has ordered our lives, and our desire is to know, Lord, what would you have me do in life through which you will glorify yourself? Wouldn't that be neat to tell children as they're coming up? Not, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or how do you expect to serve God when you grow up? Like through what means? Because the Lord, he's, a, he's God of the means as well. He's sovereign over the means, as Scott always says. And, and well said. I used to think that John the Baptist had to be miserable. Because when you think about being out eating locusts and wild honey, when you think about that, like out in the wilderness, how in the world can you find any joy in that? You know? But now, I believe John the Baptist was perhaps the most fulfilled joyful individual in the world at the time because he lived in perfect harmony with the will of God for his life. He was filled with the Holy Spirit while in the womb. What a joyful life to lead. What could bring more joy? So, the what of worship, to worship God, is to so recognize his worth that we prostrate our heart and soul in reverent submission and adoration for who he is, and we live a life in service to him. The scope, all of life, everywhere. We can't turn him off. He's everywhere. I always say, if we conduct ourselves always as if we're in the presence of the Lord, it'll be such a uh, consistent life, right? And, and there's peace in that. He sees it anyway, right? Like, Lord, I'm confessing. You know what I'm confessing because you're with me. You see, right? Like, it doesn't chase us away. It endears us to him even more. The practice, the how of worship in spirit and in truth. And, and what I would say for all of us is we've got to know the Bible. If someone walks up and says, hey, what's Ephesians about? You should be able to tell them. Seriously. Unless you were born yesterday, born again yesterday, every believer, this is what we're talking about, right? Like, we're not talking about uh, disconnected verses here and there. We're talking about understanding the flow of Scripture from God's perspective. And to get that, we have to know these books. We have to. The motive, the why, we worship God. That's why we're created. And we worship God because that's why we were saved. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you've said that the heavens declare 
the glory that is due you and the firmament, your handiwork, day after day, they pour forth speech. Lord, each of us that you've called and graciously given us the title as true worshipers, we are Christians because we're Christ-like. We are believers because we have the right truth. And we are worshipers because we are doing what every soul has been created to do. And we thank you for that. We know that that's what you've done. And now, as you continue to work in our hearts, we know that it is you who is at work in us both to will and to act according to your good pleasure. Lord, work in us continuously a desire to worship you in greater measure, greater truth, with a pure spirit. And we know that that's impossible apart from you. So we commit that to you. Lord, I pray for this church and just the joy of, of being here and seeing uh, believers who love you. I told Scott that, that introductory prayer this morning. Um, and Lord, you know, because you're always with us. It's such inspiring approach to ministry, uh, one that I've, I've not had much contact with. But I pray that you will bless every effort prompted by their faith and uh, fulfill your will and purpose in the Woodlands Bible Church. We give you all the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Amen.